Thanks for listening to the Distribution Podcast. If you like this content, you may also enjoy the webinar I hosted featuring previous podcast guests, Heather Furstrom-Border and Jennifer Stevens, co-founders and managing partners at Alliance Global Advisors. You can now access highlights from the conversation on junipersquare.com forward slash GP resilience, all one word. You will learn about the best practices GPs can use to differentiate themselves from the competition and continue to build meaningful relationships with current and prospective investors. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director of Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. We're here on site today at the IMN CFO COO Conference in Dana Point, California. We're spending time with industry thought leaders who are sharing critical insights and perspectives about the macroeconomic environment, the impending recession, or perhaps lack thereof, and more broadly, how leaders are driving operational efficiency in their business. Today, we're interviewing CFOs, CEOs, and COOs to gain critical insights. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square and learn as much as I have. Wes, great to see you. You too. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. So we're here at IMN CFO COO 2023. Today's May 2nd, 2023. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what's going on in the market today and gather insights from some of our experts. So Wes, can you start off by introducing yourself and your firm? Yep, Wesley Wilson, Partner and Chief Financial Officer of the Vanith Affordable Housing. We own and operate about 16,000 units of affordable housing across the nation on behalf of uh, institutional clients, both international and domestic. Excellent. And when you talk about affordable housing, what does that mean? There's a lot of talk about uppercase A, lowercase A. Can you explain affordable to us? Yeah, so we see affordable as uppercase A, which is having some sort of regulation or subsidy on the asset that really serves low-income tenants within a a community in a city. We consider anything without that sort of regulation or subsidy to be workforce housing. So about 85% of our portfolio right now is affordable, uppercase. And then about 15% of that is workforce within the vicinity of an affordable property that we own so that we can get the the mobility and and economies between the residents. Excellent. And as you walk around on the floor here at IMN, what is the general tone and tenor of the kind of participants of this conference from your perspective? Yeah, I I think everyone's trying to operate effectively under the uncertainty that's going on with the Fed, with labor participation, despite the fact that unemployment is so low. We're looking at rising interest rates. We're looking at inflation curbing, but still being pretty high, rising costs. So there's there's a lot of factors that I think are impacting businesses in the sector, impacting valuations, impacting how we underwrite and how we evaluate opportunities. But there's also a lot of uncertainty with that, which which makes everyone pause and, and really consider things. When you think about it on a continuum with, you know, one being very bad and 10 being, you know, really good, kind of where do you think we are, either your view or kind of the collective sentiment of the participants today, which are mostly CFOs and COOs of real estate investment management companies? Yeah, I, I think it I think it really is a factor of what you're invested in, how big you are, how you're looking at things and how quickly you're able to maneuver office, for example, depending on the location, I would put lower on the scale. Affordable housing, we feel, is is much higher on that scale. But I think all in all, with uncertainty, there's still 
some sort of optimism that there will be a reprieve early next year from what consensus of economics are out there. But, you know, we feel, we feel good about that optimism. So I wouldn't put it as low as a five, but probably somewhere closer to a seven. And when you think about your business and the impact that rising interest rates have on the affordable housing, how do you think about the kind of that challenge that, you know, the challenge of the market shift that we're operating in today? Yeah, fortunate for us, we borrowed directly from Fannie and Freddie under their affordable housing mandate. So we're able to get uh, still today a lot lower fixed rate interest only debt at low leverage because we only go up to 50% as a max for our portfolio than, than what we're seeing other people in the market get. So there are some instances where we're still seeing, you know, positive leverage type acquisitions and, and opportunities out there. So fortunately, we refinanced a good portion of our portfolio with 10-year interest-only debt at low leverage back when rates were as low as 2.9 and 3.10. So, you know, we've got a good base of, of debt for us in our portfolio that if we're adding new debt or refinancing, we're still able to cover pretty well and, and blend that in. And multifamily has been a darling of the industry. And I think affordable falls into that broad bucket. When you look at the next 12 to 18 months, are there any concerns that you have in terms of kind of the broader macro environment and its impact on, you know, the housing sector writ large? I think there's still an immense amount of demand and still in key markets, especially the ones that we're invested in, very low supply for multifamily. So I think the fundamentals are still strong. There's always things going on in the political sphere that that may impact certain regions or the country as a whole. But I think fundamentally that multifamily still has a very strong business case for our sector specifically with capital A affordability. It still remains a very fragmented market. So there's still a lot of opportunity, a lot of LIHTC developments that have been built within the last 10 years that will you know, come up for resale once those, those tax credits have expired. That, that still provides a, a lot of good opportunity for the business. Great. Switching gears, let's talk a little bit about the organization of yeah. your firm. You are the CFO and the COO or just CFO? Uh, partner and CFO. Yeah. Partner and CFO. So what lives under your remit when it comes to kind of middle and back office functions in particular? Yeah. So we, all the, all the accounting functions, all the tax functions, uh, the FP&A, which is financial planning analysis, the data analytics and applications, in, I've had iterations of roles where there was asset management under me and SEC compliance and in various aspects. So, you know, but right, right now it's, it's mainly those groups. And how do you think about operational efficiency when you look at your middle and back office in particular? And are you leveraging technology? Technology is a, is a big piece of it for us. We've invested a lot in technology over the years in making sure that everything we're doing from tenant leasing and tenant ledgers and work orders to fund accounting to corporate accounts is all within the same data infrastructure. That allows us to pull data quickly in real time. We've, we've invested layers of data analytics and stuff on top of that so that we can not only have metrics available for our investors, but we've defined metrics for the industry and for our, our operating business that help us be more effective and, and, you know, more efficient. So, you know, we do everything in-house. We, we found that, you know, it's much easier for us with community managers, centralized receivables, centralized payables, and fund accounting and property accounting to all work collectively 
together within the same environment. And technology plays a major role in kind of driving operational efficiency. I think in addition to that, you've recently made a decision to outsource one of your your open end vehicle. What kind of drove that decision? And I know that you have a background, you know, in fund accounting, obviously yeah. as the CFO and partner of the firm. Yeah. So the big driver of it was the capital account maintenance for the open end fund and being able to easily layer the technology with the the outsourced function on top of what we were doing already. It wasn't something that was going to impede our environment and our ecosystem. It wasn't something that was going to take away from what we were doing well. It was more of a value add. But, you know, as with outsourcing and, and, and fund administration, the technology is such a big part of it because, you know, people internally versus people externally, I'd much rather have the people internally manage it. But when the people externally are using technology that's suited for a purpose that we don't have, that's when it becomes more of a value-add strategy. One of the things that a lot of the conversation today has been about is about how technology can make you know middle and back offices more efficient to not only enable the teams that exist, but also to help attract new talent. As mm-hmm. you think about the growth of, of Anith and your ability to attract and retain talent, kind of how do you think about the role that technology can play in driving those decisions? Yeah, I, I think, you know, from being a, a fund accountant in, in the past, I mean, spending enormous amount of time on reconciliations or data or consolidations or, or everything that goes into those roles, you know, if we could do it quicker and, and faster and have those people work on other aspects of the organization that they otherwise wouldn't do if they were doing a lot of this manual labor, it benefits the individual, but also benefits us as an organization because we're able to take people and, and use them and, and broaden their scope broaden their ability to contribute to the company and and broaden the company's input from viewpoints of, of different people. So, you know, we have, we're, we're big on as well on cross movement of employees. I've had fund accountants on my team who are now in acquisitions. As a result, I have, you know, we've had fund accountants go to investor relations. We've had on-site managers come and work in the corporate office in different functions. We've had, um, you know, a lot of that kind of cross creativity and, and people are able to bring a lot to roles as a result of, you know, the technology that we use. Excellent. And when you think about the current environment, there's been a lot of talk, including today about the denominator effect and the impact that that has on you know, firm's ability to raise money. What are you seeing or what are you hearing from investors? You know, I don't know if you're raising a fund or not, and, you know, we can talk about it or choose not to, but what are you, what are you hearing from investors that you work with about their ability to, you know, allocate capital in this environment? Yeah. I mean, our investors span from uh, banks, insurance companies, endowments, international companies, pension funds and the like. So it, it really is a different conversation amongst the different classes and amongst the different countries, right? So we've we've still been successful in fundraising for our open-end fund, but there's still a, a, a lot of people who are looking at holding the capital and, and waiting for 
a, a sort of valuation adjustment. And then we've got people in the middle who are saying, look, we're going to invest, but we're going to dollar cost average this investment over a period so that if, if we've already experienced the worst of it, great, we're in. And if there's more to come, then we have some, some money coming in at that time as well. So I, we see it across the spectrum. We, we, we tend to think that people will start coming back, hopefully by the end of the year. But the amount of due diligence that we're going through in conversations is still very, very active. The, the, the amount of new calls we're having with new investors, the amount of people we're looking at us from a due diligence aspect, that hasn't really changed at all. It's really just the, the flow of funds has kind of been pushed out a little further. So people are still doing the work. People are still active. They're looking for opportunities. But I think everyone's waiting to see how, how the Fed moves in the next few months where they really start putting money down. And have you noticed any changes in terms of investors' expectations when it comes to reporting or negotiating special terms or side letters? You know, it seems to me like a lot of the conversation here has been that the pendulum has shifted from the GP having a lot of the power, you know, through the last cycle to the LPs, you know, controlling the power. And when that happens, historically, you see this big shift in terms of expectations. Have we seen that this go around or is it kind of been, you know, business as usual for the most part? I mean, we've always felt that if you're investing your money with us, we should be able to give you whatever you need with regards to the investment. And if there's a reason that we can't, then we need to figure out how we can adjust and get the technology and the reporting internally there so that you have that. So with that philosophy over the past seven years, nothing's really been a big surprise to us. There are things that come up where we're not doing that we have to adjust and and make it happen. But thankfully with technology, we're able to do that to do that pretty quickly. So we see the gamut of every request. We don't really ever say no because, you know, we're fiduciaries and, and we're grateful for the trust that investors have put us, you know, for the product. And, you know, if I was in their shoes, I'd want the same information. So, you know, we, we, we've always kind of looked at that kind of customer service model with it. And I think when you, when you do that, uh, you know, the expectations, they, nothing's going to surprise you. What's one thing that our listeners should know about Avanath and kind of your model that might not be totally obvious from looking at your website or, you know, perhaps hearing your perspectives on a panel today at the IMN conference? You know, one thing about us is the the culture and of what we do and within the company is very much on the communities and the residents we serve. And that's something that bleeds through every everyone and in, in, in the decisions we make. We're also fiduciaries to investors and we're we're trying to get returns. But it's it's the conversations that we have are both and they're not either or, right? How could we serve our residents, uh, work towards upward mobility, provide affordable, safe communities, but also provide a a return to our investors that that meets their criteria. And so, you know, we're always looking at things through a creative lens where we're we're trying to solve both. And and it's, it's a difficult thing, but I think that we've proved that it can be done over the past seven years, which is pretty exciting. So, don't take this the wrong way, but my belief is that CFOs get paid to worry, worry about all the things that could go wrong. You seem like a pretty upbeat guy and everything I know, you know, you're steady as steady as they go. But when you look out over the next 12 months, obviously we're operating in a new environment. There's a lot of uncertainty and variables that none of us have control over. 
what keeps you up at night as it relates to kind of the things that you can't control that are happening all around us, but you'll need to react to? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to think on that. Yeah. Let me think about that for a minute. Th- think about that. Yeah. Maybe I'll ask you the, the other side of the question. Anything that you're particularly excited about over the next, you know, tw- eight, six to 12 months? Yeah, I think there's there's been a lot of creativity that we've been able to put to work in how we find opportunity and how we create affordable housing. We've got two projects, one in Boston and, and one in Los Angeles that are sizable assets where we've worked with a regulatory agency to convert workforce housing that would otherwise be sold to a developer who's going to tear down and put very expensive luxury units. We've taken the programs and relationships with the housing authorities in order to preserve those assets, put more capital into them, revitalize the communities, but also keep the rents and, and put into place regulation where the rents stay at a certain level. So, you know, there's been instances where it's either become through grants or through property tax abatements. And they're, you know, equivalent to sizable rent increases, but keep the community at the same rent levels and keep the families in place, but with a, a revitalized asset. So, you know, the, the opportunities, I think, with regards to degrading office products across the U.S. and kind of a oversupply there with low occupancies. In addition to, um, you know, some other opportunities, I'm really excited for kind of the creativity that we're able to, to put together. So do you think that with the degrading office environment, that's going to create opportunity for reuse or revitalization of those office assets into affordable and workforce housing in our cities? Or how do you think about, what does that mean? How do you think about that opportunity? Yeah, I, I think there's absolutely opportunity for it. It's, it's a strategy that's not new, right? There's been office to multifamily conversions that have gone on over the past 10 years. But I think when you look at the office product, it's the likely candidate for more housing because of one of the need, but also just how the office product is structured. Retail, right, is a little bit different in its revitalization because you could repurpose and reuse it, but there's many different ways that can look. And have you engaged in any office to resi conversions in kind of the recent past or kind of this cycle? We, we have not yet, no. Mm-hmm. But you think it's viable? I, we're looking at it. There's, you know, we're always looking at different opportunities and different ways to create affordable housing. And given the current environment, that's an opportunity. But, you know, along with that comes the challenges of rezoning and the cost of capital and the cost to convert. So it's something that, you know, we're, we're actively looking at amongst a, a, ver- a myriad of possible strategies. When you think about the next year, 2024, what are your kind of one or two priorities through the lens of CFO versus partner at the firm? I know you can't separate the two, but like specifically through kind of, you know, what's happening in the financial markets. Yeah, I think what everyone's taking a step, taking a step back right now, we're obviously in a environment where people are reacting to interest rates, they're reacting to valuations, they're reacting to the economic aspects. But as acquisitions have mostly slowed down, as equity has slowed down, it gives, I think, CFOs an opportunity to step back and say, you know, a lot of us have been drinking from a fire hose for the past six years. What 
projects have we put on hold that we can take a look at now? How could we be more efficient? Where could we use more technology? How could we structure things so that, you know, personnel's lives are easier and they're more empowered? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of projects where, you know, frankly, they've, they've kind of been on the back burner that we now have the opportunity to, to visit and, and make a sizable impact on the firm and how it operates so that when things do get back to a place where there's new equity coming in and new acquisitions, we're able to scale much easier and we're able to handle that growth a little easier. Awesome. Well, Wes, I appreciate you sitting down with me today. I know it's busy out there at the conference. I really appreciate your insights and uh, thanks for the partnership. Awesome. Great. Great seeing you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Brandon Sudloff, Managing Director of Juniper Square, and you've been listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. We've been coming to you from the IMN CFO COO Conference in Dana Point, California in May of 2023. Over the course of the last few days, we've had the opportunity to learn from industry leaders and get their perspectives on what's happening in the market around interest rates, the recession, and how to build operational efficiency and resilience into the markets. A few of the takeaways that I've observed are that number one, real estate still remains fundamentally a people business and your relationships with investors and your lenders matter. Do the right thing. Second, we are a very optimistic bunch and by and large, most people believe that things will get better. It's only a matter of time. And lastly, we need to remember that real estate fulfills a critical need in society to be the place where people live, people work, and people play. So while the macro environment remains uncertain and nobody can control what the Fed is going to do, the outlook for commercial real estate remains bright. And for those firms who are focused on the fundamentals of asset management, driving operational efficiency, focusing on their core competencies, they will survive, they will thrive, and together the industry will emerge stronger than ever before. Thank you for joining me and listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you want to follow along, you can follow me on LinkedIn under LinkedIn forward slash B Sedloff or on Twitter at B Sedloff. 